From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Madeleine Albright moved to Denver as a kid when her father, a professor and diplomat, landed a teaching job. I grew up with the concept of foreign policy and international relations. Every time my father was interested in a subject, I would get interested in it. I was the perfect daughter. I am still the perfect daughter. We remember Secretary Albright stitching together her conversations with Colorado Matters over the years. Then state lawmakers think they finally have a plan to crack down on fentanyl dealers while helping users find treatment. And a roundtable of black female attorneys and a judge in Colorado. They talk about this moment for Katanji Brown-Jackson. To finally see her get through that door, which has been closed for such a long time, it does give you a sense of hope. I'm Claire from Castle Rock. I'm from Longmont, Colorado. I'm from Fruta. From Wheat Ridge. From Sedalia. Genesee. Kiowa. My wife and I live in Boulder. In Grand Junction. Carbondale. Frankstown. Windsor, Colorado. Hi, this is Amanda in Loveland, and I support Colorado Public Radio because it is just that. It's publicly funded by the people who listen to it, and I think that should be very valued in our society today. It's easy to donate at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. We'll spend the first part of our show remembering former Secretary of State Madeleine Albright, whose Colorado connections ran deep. She died of cancer Wednesday at age 84. This state served as a stark contrast to the Nazism and the Soviet yoke her family fled, leaving Czechoslovakia in 1948. Secretary Albright sat down with us, if my count and memory serve, on four separate occasions. We're going to dip into some of that archive tape now, starting with her formative years here. Albright was sworn in as a U.S. citizen when she was in Colorado. She went to middle school and high school in Denver. Her father, Joseph Corbell, taught at the University of Denver. And when DU named its School of International Studies after him in 2008, she came to town. Secretary, thank you for being with us. I'm delighted to be with you. Thank you. Can you give me an example of a decision that you made as Secretary of State that was influenced by something you learned from your father? Well, there were a number of them, but I think one that was very clear was in terms of ending the ethnic cleansing in Kosovo. My father really had felt that it was essential to stand up to evil and to killing of innocent people. That was the lesson that he brought with him from World War II. In addition to that, my father had been the Czechoslovak ambassador to Yugoslavia. And so the combination of knowing that we, the United States, all-powerful, could not stand by and watch ethnic cleansing take place in a part of the world that I knew well, I think was the one that I most felt that his spirit was kind of flying over me. How did your father teach you about foreign policy? Was it over dinner that you absorbed this? Was it more formal than that? It was constant. Some people ask me, how did I get into what I'm doing? There never was a choice. I was the oldest child. We uh, spent the war in England, and then, as I said, he was ambassador. You know, the, the little girl in the national costume who gives flowers at the airport? I used to do that for a living. And I grew up with the concept of foreign policy and international relations. Uh, Every time that my father was interested in a subject, 
I would get interested in it. I, I was the perfect daughter. I am still the perfect daughter. You are still the perfect daughter. What does that mean? Well, first of all, my father was a fantastic father in terms of a role model, and and I wanted to have him tell me that I was wonderful and that I had actually was doing what he wanted me to do. So he's been dead a long time. I'm old, but I still think about what would my father do. Your family came to Denver in 1949 so that your father could teach at DU. Uh, you attended Maury Middle School and Kent, which was a, a private girls' school at the time. I read that you actually took your oath of citizenship in Denver. I did. Do you remember that? Absolutely, and it was down at the courthouse. And when I come to Denver, I, I always somehow go by the courthouse. It was did you 19- this time? I did. I loved becoming an American. And one of the things that I did on July 4th, 2000, at Monticello, Je- Thomas Jefferson's home, I was there when we swore in a whole new group of other American citizens, and I handed them their papers. And I said to them, I have a paper just like this. It is the most valuable piece of paper you will ever have. Proving what a small world it really is, one of her father's students at the University of Denver was a woman named Condoleezza Rice, who would also become Secretary of State. In that same interview, I asked Secretary Albright if she knew Rice back then. No, I did not. My father died in 1977, and at that time he already was pretty well known in Denver, and there were lots of tributes and flowers, and among the flowers uh, was a ceramic pot in the shape of a piano with a variety of leaves in them, and I said to my mother, where did this come from? And she said, it's from your father's favorite student, Condoleezza Rice. I later learned she had come to the University of Denver as a music major, hence the piano, and had taken a course from my father, and he persuaded her to become an international relations major. So I didn't know her until in 1987, when I was working for Michael Dukakis, uh, assembling foreign policy advisors. So I called her up and I said, you know, would you like to be an advisor to Michael Dukakis? And she said, Madeline, I don't know how to tell you this, but I'm a Republican. And I said, Condi, how could you be? We had the same father. Madeline Albright speaking with me in 2008 at the school named for her father, Joseph Corbell. That same year, Albright came to town for the Democratic National Convention. Denver played host as Barack Obama clinched his party's nomination. And Albright had brought in a global delegation to witness the process. We caught up at the Brown Palace Hotel. You know, some look cynically at conventions and say they are scripted events. We know who the nominee is. What possibly could members of an international delegation learn from an event like this? Uh, Madam Secretary, I'd like you to address that. Well, first of all, I think that it is really an exercise in American democracy. There's an awful lot that is going on at a convention. And the National Democratic Institute has, since 1984, sponsored seminars for foreign visitors to really uh, give some explanation of what they're seeing in terms of how people get to a convention, uh, what some of the polling data is about, how our democratic system works, what is going to be the view uh, of the Democratic Party on foreign policy. So it's kind of an ongoing dialogue and an explanation of what's happening. And, and I think foreign visitors enjoy seeing the diversity and spectacle of a democratic convention at its best. 
As she was coming up in diplomatic circles, Secretary Albright harnessed an unusual tool, pins, the kind you wear on your lapel. She wrote a book about them called Read My Pins, Stories from a Diplomat's Jewel Box. And in 2012, more than 200 of those pins and the stories that accompanied them landed at the Denver Art Museum. Tell us about the pin that started it all. It's a snake pin. Yes. So this is what happened. I was sent to the United Nations as our ambassador in February 1993, and it was right after the Gulf War, and the ceasefire was translated into a series of sanctions resolutions that had to be renewed all the time. And I was an instructed ambassador, and my instructions were to say perfectly terrible things about Saddam Hussein constantly, which he deserved. He'd invaded Kuwait. So after a while, a poem appeared in the papers in Baghdad comparing me to many things, but among them an unparalleled serpent. So I happened to have had a snake pin, and I wore it whenever we were talking about Iraq. And then I think you know when, uh, after a meeting of the Security Council, the ambassadors go out and you talk to the press, and all of a sudden somebody zeroed in on my snake pin and said, so why are you wearing that snake pin? And I said, because Saddam Hussein compared me to an unparalleled serpent. (laughs) And then I thought, well, this is fun. So I went out and I bought a lot of costume jewelry to reflect what I thought was going to happen on any given day. So on good days, I wore flowers and butterflies and balloons. And on bad days, a lot of horrible insects and carnivorous animals. And So when the other ambassadors would say, what are we going to do today? I said, read my pins. And that's how it all started. I see. Rather than your lips, uh, which could also be read, the pins could be. Right. And it was right after the first President Bush had actually said, read my lips, no new taxes. So people knew what I was talking about. (laughs) Was there ever a time where you thought no pin was the right message? Uh, That is not to wear one at all. Only when I forgot or when I'm exercising. But now we've kind of created a mini monster here so that when I'm not wearing a pin, it is a sign of something really awful or (laughs) just that um, I'm exercising. (laughs) What pin do you think was most photographed or or in a photograph that was most sent around the world? I think probably uh, when I wore an American flag, which I love to do, and the largest American flag I ever wore was when I went to North Korea. Because one of the things that happened, I knew that Kim Jong-il had been attacking the United States, and I knew that they would, in fact, publish a picture of me standing with him. So if I had the biggest American flag on, that would prove we were there. But I think probably my various eagles uh, were the most photographed. And when might you wear an eagle and to convey what kind of message? Well, I, uh, I had an, an eagle pin that I got when I was Secretary of State, and I think that it was usually in order to convey what I believed was the goodness of American power, of when we were involved in some way, for instance, in the Balkans, and we're trying to make sure that ethnic cleansing stopped, when America was there in order to help other people. I wonder if you've ever had conversations with male ambassadors about whether they put this much thought into ties. We've never actually had that kind of a conversation, but I do know that they do. Because one of the things that I think people don't fully understand is that even in a very high-level diplomatic conversation when presidents meet with other heads of state, you have to begin the conversation somehow. 
And so there's always like your tie, or I'm wearing this tie because it's got your symbol on it or something like that. So ties do become a conversation piece or, or a game opener. Do you have a favorite pin? Well, I do have a favorite pin, and it's a ceramic heart. And I always wear it on Valentine's Day, except now that it's in the show. But, you know, people say, where'd you get that pin? And I said, well, my daughter made it. And my daughter, she's now 45, she says, Mom, you've got to tell people I made this when I was five years old. But uh, (laughs) I love the pin. And uh, her daughter, my granddaughter, has made a little couple of paper hearts that are now a pin that I I wear instead. But I love uh, what I call Katie's heart. I wonder how many pins you own right now, or if you've lost track. I have lost track. It's really embarrassing. There are a couple of hundred pins in the show, but the thing that has happened is that people have felt sorry for me because uh, the pins that I'd been wearing all this time are now traveling around, and so they're giving me other pins, and uh, I call them my pity pins, and, and I do have a whole new collection. I see. Did your penchant for pins have other effects besides diplomatic messages? Well, they create a lot of holes in my suits. Okay. (laughs) Uh, But I I really think that in many ways I revived the costume jewelry industry. But what I also showed, I hope, to people, first of all, that foreign policy doesn't have to be so foreign because the reason that I did the book and the show exists is that the pins that are in the show all have some kind of foreign policy story, and they allow me to talk about the anti-ballistic missile treaty or what we were doing in North Korea or our relations with France or name it, because they're just a vehicle for uh, being able to tell those kinds of stories. But I think, I hope they also showed that for not a lot of money, people can brighten their lives up and, and have fun Uh, looking for something at flea markets or picking up souvenirs or something like that. And of course, I have to ask about the pin you're wearing today. Well, today I actually am wearing a special pin. There is a new building in Washington, the U.S. Institute of Peace, which looks like the wings of a dove. And when I went over there for a, a ceremony, they gave me this pin that actually looks like the building. And so I had a meeting over there today, And so that's what I thought I'd wear. Secretary of State Madeleine Albright in 2012. My last conversation with her came in 2018, halfway through the Trump presidency. She was sounding alarm bells in a book called Fascism, A Warning. Well, first of all, let me say I would have written this book no matter who had gotten elected, because what I began to see was the fact that there were a lot of have-nots in this country as a result of technology, people who had lost their jobs and they couldn't understand why, nor was our educational system set up in a way to teach them new skills. And so that division in society was beginning then, and people wondering why the 1% had so much when a lot of people were out of work. And so I was looking at what happens when there are divisions in society and then what happens uh, if there is a leader who kind of identifies himself with that group and then disrespects and uh, really exacerbates the differences with the others. So some of the things that I was nervous about really did come about with this election. And you see correlations, similarities, patterns to that period before World War II. 
I do, mm -hmm. because some of it is that America first, blaming foreigners for things. Why would you want a bunch of immigrants who are taking the jobs? And really a disrespect for the truth. And yet, when you look at, say, the last 25 years, Democrats have held the presidency for 16. To what extent are they to blame for the economic picture that you're talking about? Well, I do think that um, there had, was a lack of attention being paid. On the other hand, um, during the Obama administration, the economic uh, situation had changed for a lot of people. But I don't think that there was enough attention paid to what you said initially, the technological advances and the displacement that took place. Madeleine Albright in 2018 the first woman to become Secretary of State died Wednesday at age 84. In the hours after her death, a decades-old exchange resurfaced, which shows that her legacy is a complicated one. It's an interview with Leslie Stahl of CBS News in 1996 about the impact of sanctions on Iraq. We have heard that a half a million children have died. I mean, that's more children than died when, when, in Hiroshima. And, and, you know, is the price worth it? I think this is a very hard choice, but the price, we think the price is worth it. She later said she regretted that comment, telling democracy now it was a stupid statement. I never should have made it. And if everybody else that has ever made a statement they regret would stand up, there would be a lot of people standing. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Well, pack my canvas tote and fill my coffee mug. It's me, Paula Poundstone, from Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. And thanks to Colorado Public Radio, I'll be at the Paramount Theater in Denver on April 29th. Tickets are on sale now at ParamountDenver.com. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Colorado has a serious fentanyl problem. Deaths from the drug have increased faster here than almost anywhere else in the country. Meanwhile, the state patrol has seized more fentanyl from traffickers than law enforcement in any other state. Policymakers have struggled with how to respond, but they have settled on a bill that they hope will crack down on dealers while getting more users into treatment. CPR's Benta Berkland is covering this. Hi, Benta. Hi, Ryan. And walk us through what these lawmakers want to do. This is a bill uh, that's expected to be introduced at the state capitol at any moment. And the main focus is really to crack down on fentanyl dealers and manufacturers and require more fentanyl users to get treatment. It has both Republican and Democratic sponsors. And under this bill, dealers caught with smaller amounts of fentanyl would face stiffer penalties than right now. The bill would also create a new crime for distributing a drug that results in the user's death. And to help those who are addicted? Yes, it would increase the availability of drugs that help block the effects of opioids and test to determine trace amounts of fentanyl that's laced with other drugs so people could test something and know what they're taking. Mm. And it would require people who possess a small amount of fentanyl to take an education course, and if addicted, go to a drug treatment program. I do want to point out, though, that there's one thing this bill doesn't do that a lot of people have been pushing for. It would not increase the penalty for just possessing small amounts of fentanyl. Here's Democratic House Speaker Alec Garnett, one of the bill's main sponsors. What you have before you, I think, is a new model to make sure we're getting that person into treatment without criminalizing a disease that they're suffering from. 
Okay, so just to put a finer point on this, distributing a small amount would result in tougher penalties, but not possession. Add some context to this aspect, will you, Benta? Well, Colorado passed a law in 2019 that had both Republican and Democratic backers, and it removed felony penalties for possessing less than four grams of um, fentanyl. And it also included other drugs as well. But the idea was locking up people or charging them wasn't the solution. And the goal was really to get users into treatment. There's been a lot of pushback on that 2019 bill. Opponents argue it could let someone get away with a misdemeanor even if they possessed dozens or hundreds of doses of fentanyl, just a few milligrams of pure fentanyl can be deadly. But obviously the lawmakers behind this bill disagree. I mean, if they're not changing possession back to a felony, so what's their thinking? Yeah, the thinking was to try to punish dealers and add higher penalties to to get that off the streets and, and for the intent to distribute fentanyl and penalties if it results in death. Mesa County's Republican District Attorney Dan Rubenstein supports the bill, and he says giving prosecutors more ability to go after these dealers and increase penalties is critical. Because we don't have time to wait. People are dying. I mean, li- quite literally, people are dying because of this. And every day we go without those tools is another day that we don't have the ability to uh, send the message and to stop that behavior. Earlier, you mentioned the parts of the bill meant to push fentanyl users towards treatment uh, and to try to make the drug less deadly, I guess. Uh, expound on those. So yes, this would require anyone who has a small amount of fentanyl, so we are talking users here, into an education class. And then there would be an evaluation and people with addictions would be required to go to treatment. So we're still waiting on details on the entire cost of this and how it would work. What's the capacity in the current system for this? And how does it play into federal funds the state is planning to use for behavioral health initiatives overall and mental health treatment? Um, I would say the bill does propose putting some money aside for a statewide public health campaign with a message that no amount of fentanyl is safe. That, of course, presumes people know they're taking it, which is part of the dynamic here. Say more about the politics of this bill, Benta. Is it only coming from Democrats uh, who, of course, have the majority of the legislature or is there some like Republican sponsorship? Yes, there are Republicans that will be main sponsors, and I think we'll see other Republicans get on board as well. But some conservatives are already criticizing it for not doing enough. And there's also not unanimous support for this approach among law enforcement or prosecutors. One of the Republicans I talked to is Michael Fields, and he's affiliated with the conservative group that's running attack ads against Democrats on this issue. And he says, look, possessing any amount of fentanyl should be a felony because it is so lethal. Um, Fields said four grams could kill 2000 people. So he thinks legislators are, are still working around the edges here. I think this is an area where we may see lots of proposed amendments as lawmakers debate it. So do you expect this bill to move quickly? And like, what happens next? Like every bill that's introduced, the first step will be a hearing. And, and that's the first significant place where the public will really get a chance to weigh in. The bill will start in the House. But that public hearing won't happen immediately because next week the House is going to take up the state budget. So I expect the fentanyl bill won't really begin its legislative journey until April. CPR's Benta Berkland there. She's on our team covering the impact of fentanyl here. And Colorado Matters continues in the next half hour. 
as attorneys of color reflect on the path of Judge Ketanji Brown-Jackson. I'm Ryan Warner, and you're with CBR News and KRCC. What does it take to recover from life's big challenges, and how can others learn from one person's adversity? Season 3 of CPR's Back From Broken is out now, a podcast about recovery, everywhere you get your podcasts. Sponsored in part by the University of Colorado Anschutz Medical Campus. You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. It'll likely be another week before there is a vote on the confirmation of Katanji Brown-Jackson to the country's highest court. As the Senate Judiciary Committee reviews three days of hearings, CPR's race, diversity, and equity reporter Elaine Tassi assembled a roundtable of black female attorneys and a judge to get their takes. My name is Joyce Akahenda. I'm a lead deputy state public defender in the Colorado State Public Defender's Office in the Denver um, Trial Office. And I've been a public defender for 16 years here in Colorado. My name is Linda Lee. I'm managing partner at Lee Law. I have been practicing as a defense attorney um, since 2009. Prior to that, I was at the Adams County District Attorney's Office. This is uh, Judge Renee Goble. I'm a Denver County Court judge, um, and prior to being a judicial officer, I practiced mainly uh, complex commercial civil litigation throughout the country, but mainly in Denver for about 17 years. My name is Jamie Cowan. I am the owner and sole attorney of the law offices of Jamie Cowan, PC. I have been a criminal defense attorney for the last 12 years, and I was an Adams County Senior Deputy District Attorney for five and a half years. My name is Fulvetta Golightly Howell. I am someone who's been around Colorado law for a long time, having practiced as a trial attorney, both in civil and criminal. And I'm the chair of the board and the CEO of a nonprofit public charity named Sister to Sister International Network of Professional African American Incorporated. Okay, so CPR's Elaine Tassi asked about the scrutiny that shaped these hearings and about this moment in history. There's always a higher bar, um, particularly when you're a black female, and um, it's also a lot isolating. There's a lot of isolation. You're often alone and the only person. And so, um, you know, watching her be attacked, um, it's, it's just not surprising. And I think po- probably we've all been in similar circumstances of being isolated and attacked in our career positions, um, just rising to the level that, that we're at. But the additional thing that I feel is a sense of pride. She is handling herself very well, just as I expected her to. She um, is keeping calm. You know, um, they often try to poke at you to try to get you to be the angry black woman. She is showing that that is not the case. And she is showing that she is um, what we all knew she was, a well-educated, well-trained, smart, intelligent black woman. And for me, especially because she was a public defender, and often we're told as public defenders, you're not going to get to those types of positions when you're a public defender. To see her up there and to see how well she is doing, just as I expected she would, there's also a sense of pride in that as well. Mm -hmm. Because she can aspire to that. Do you feel as though you could say to yourself, well, 
she's doing it, so why can't I do it? Right. I think it opens a lot of doors, not only for me, but for other um, black women, other young black attorneys to say, I can do this also. It's been a long time coming. We as black women have done a lot for this country. We've given a lot back. And to finally see her get through that door, which has been closed for such a long time, it does give you a sense of hope. Um, Even though it's difficult, it still um, helps you to realize that there is that chance, there is that hope that you can make it. We as Black women, smart, accomplished Black women, are the most intimidating people that are found in the world. We scare and bring fear to the hearts of many people because not only of our intellect, but because of the way that we present ourselves with grace and spirit and compassion and energy. And having practiced law now for over four decades here in Colorado and been among the first in a number of different areas, including the first black female prosecutor here in Colorado, I've seen it all. We have a phenomenal woman who's sitting there in the hot seat before the Senate. And one of the things that I know for sure is that she has strong faith. And when you have strong faith, you realize and understand that if something is intended to be yours, it doesn't matter who is after you, who tries to beat you down, who tries to embarrass you, it is going to be yours because you would have stood with grace and intelligence and fairness and compassion. So that's what I see Judge Brown Jackson illustrating, not only for we Black attorneys, but for our children and other children She is the consummate role model. And what I would also say is that, yes, it has been a long time coming to see her, someone like her, sitting in that seat. But we knew it was coming. And if you just look back at what Thurgood Marshall, the first Black Supreme Court justice, had to go through at his confirmation hearing, and you consider the partisanship that exists within not just the Senate, but the House and throughout government, you understand that victories are fought for. They are ones that you just have to keep your feet on the pedal and keep moving. And that's what I see her doing. And I have no doubt that she will be confirmed. How do you all think that Judge Ketanji Brown Jackson's lived experiences are going to influence how she serves? I think we all bring our experience into what we do. You don't check your experience at the door. You definitely bring that to what you're doing, and whether it's a judge, whether it's a lawyer. Um, of course, as she said, she has to stay in her lane. Um, she is not, you know, she's supposed to be impartial. So, and I give her the credit that she deserves that she is capable of being impartial. 
But being impartial doesn't mean that she can't recognize what's going on in our justice system, which is it's really mind blowing how different uh, the treatment is for not just blacks, but also people of lower income as well. So I think when she talks about having her uncle, who was basically sentenced during a war on drugs back in the 80s and the cocaine, when the cocaine was out there. But then she has this juxtaposition of all these family members, um, Miami chief of police, who are in the police department, her brother, uncle, uh, a lot of different people. I think that shows like a balance that she has to be able to actually look at it. But I think she's going to bring her experience from not just her aunt, uncles who are police or whatever, but the uncle that got arrested, the clients that she defended. And that's important. Um, that's really important to have somebody on that bench who's going to know like this is the reality of the situation. So I think she's going to be great. I think it's it's going to um, really, really benefit her to have that prior experience with criminal uh, and, and personally and also professionally. Joyce, what do you think? I agree with um, what Linda is saying. I think um, her lived experiences are going to help inform her decision making as well as educating maybe other members of the Supreme Court about things that they may not have experienced or that they are not aware of. Can you give me an example of what you mean? Well, just the fact that, like Linda Lee was saying, that um, she had a family member who was wrongfully convicted. A lot of people think wrongful convictions are rare. But then here you have someone who's saying, I know somebody, I had a family member who was wrongfully convicted. So they're able to say, the justice system doesn't always work perfectly. And so we have a, a certain segment of our society who believes that the justice system always works properly. And that when it doesn't work, you know, that if someone is not guilty, then they're found not guilty. And they don't understand that people can actually get convicted for something that they didn't do. And, or for um, how they look. Or for how they look, right? Or that they can just be stopped because of how they look. And I think having somebody who can say that, no, these things really do happen. You know, what we've seen in our society lately, particularly with George Floyd and other things like that, is video has brought a lot of awareness to things that people did not know existed. And so a lot of things that we were saying were happening Nobody believed what we were saying because there was no video camera there. And now video has shown a light on that. And now you have a Supreme Court member who can talk about those type of experiences and say they're real. So her lived experiences, they're deaf. And, and they also help not just in criminal cases, but I think also in civil cases as well. Mm -hmm. um, because there are experiences that um, people of color have in, like, uh, in civil matters that other people may not understand in regards to um, how their rights may be violated in, um, in those situations. And she's represented people who are indigent. That perspective hasn't been brought to the to the bench before that perspective of what people of lower incomes go through and what they're feeling and how they're taught 
what they experience through the system. So um, I think it's really important. And I think that it's a perspective that has been lacking for a very long time. Mm -hmm. What about um, you, Judge Goebel? Are you thinking of anything similar to what we're hearing as far as her lived experiences are concerned? Yeah, certainly. So I think your lived experience, your experience as a human being is very important for what you need to do on the bench when you are judging people. And and I'm obviously talking from the perspective of the trial lawyer, not an appellate court, but you have to understand the mechanism of human nature. And part of that is understanding the whole scope of human nature. And so I think having Judge Jackson's lived experience is going to be crucial. And for her to also explain and to help guide her colleagues who might not know what it's like to be or never necessarily represented an indigent person or a person of color and understanding all of these these nuances that come with that. So I'm a civil judge. Um, I'm in the Denver County Court Civil Division, and I mainly handle evictions. And most of the eviction cases I have, it's overwhelmingly, even though we're in Colorado, that the, the number of folks that come before me are per persons of color. They are indigent. They cannot you know, afford to pay their rent. Um, that doesn't mean that, you know, they, they get a free pass. The law is the law. But just explaining the process to them that people don't understand because they're not normally in the system. So I spend a lot of my time during the day just educating people about, you know, civics, about governance, about their rights. And that's something that, you know, as the Supreme Court, that's exactly what they're supposed to do, explain the law in a way that everyone can understand and so that it can you know, be told as the law of the land. And so I think her experience is going to be a great credit and attribute to her. I'm very hopeful that she's going to get confirmed. I think it it needs to happen uh, for so many reasons, but mainly because she's a really good judge and she, she, you have to have that grit to do this. And she's proving herself just by sitting so calmly in these confirmation hearings it's not easy. I would have given up long ago. <laughs> um, but uh, but anyway, I, I do think her experience is going to be very beneficial to her. So when you said I would have given up long ago, I heard you kind of laugh a little bit. But I'm wondering, is anybody in the room feeling like they might have given up in during the process? Well, I've had l- lots of people tell me, oh, you should be nominated. I said, first of all, I don't want that job. <laughs> I don't want the vetting and I don't want just the scrutiny. I mean, you want to talk about being under a microscope. It's like an electron microscope with her. Um, And I just don't think I had the stomach for it. The vetting process I had to go through for my judicial process was was great and it was fine, but it wasn't nearly at this level. And it's just honestly not something that I I would want to do because I like being a trial uh, judge. Um, But regardless, it's, it's not easy. And I think we all have to give her credit for just even taking up the task and accepting the nomination, knowing she's going to be on this great scale. Very similar to Vice President Harris. You know, this is the, like the first time. Um, and so I give her lots of credit for it. And this is Valvetta. I would never have given up. I believe that she realizes that this is her destiny and her purpose and that she is strengthened to do what she needs to do. So no, I never would have given up. And somebody always has to be the first. And I can tell you being the first is extremely difficult, no matter in which legal setting or even executive setting you may be. It's extremely difficult, but somebody has to do it. 
And I believe that she will be the first of us to join the court. And my hope is that she can actually make it better because I feel that the court is just as politicized, although it's not supposed to be, I think it's just as partisan and the justices do not have those type of relationships, just like Congress doesn't have the type of relationships that used to exist decades ago, although our people weren't really part of that, never have truly been a member of the gang. We are listening to a roundtable of black female attorneys and a judge in Colorado focused on the confirmation hearings for U.S. Supreme Court nominee Katanji Brown-Jackson. CPR's race, diversity, and equity reporter Elaine Tassie asked the panel what they think put Judge Brown-Jackson above other nominees. This is Joyce speaking, and I want to say I think that there was a desire to appoint someone who had a public defender background. Um And so I think that because um, public defenders and defense attorneys have been not been a part of this process for such a long period of time, and that perspective has not been a part of the um, Supreme Court and the bench, I think that there was a desire to bring that perspective to the bench. That's just my personal feeling. This is Velveeta. As a political scientist, I think that The reason she rose above the others, although her qualifications speak for themselves, she's exceptional. And the others were also excellent candidates. But in my view, what made her rise above the others is that she had just been through the process, the confirmation processes, and she had gotten through that. So thinking politically, I think that the Biden administration thought was that She's already been through it. And some of these Republicans have already voted for her. Another thing I wanted to ask you all about was the fact when President Biden was a candidate, he had mentioned that he intended to select a Black woman for a Supreme Court position if one should come open during his term. And I'm wondering, had he not said that, do you think that her experience right now would be any different than how it's going. Jamie, what do you think about that? I'm not sure if the experience would be any different, but I am sure that that puts a then target on her back of, well, she's not as qualified because Biden already said he was nominating a Black woman. And they used any reason to then lessen her by those words, that he couldn't have picked her for any other reason. That's the only qualification. Once he says, well, I'm going to pick a Black woman, it kind of sets up the expectation that, therefore, everybody who's not a Black woman isn't getting an opportunity to have this position. And I just want to know whether or not you all feel that by specifying that he was looking for a Black female candidate, that he almost set her up to be scrutinized differently? This is Velveeta Elaine, and I would say, no, he was not setting her up. I would say that Biden had political reasons for making that statement during the debate. You'll remember he was far behind for a long time, and 
it really came down to Black people getting out and voting for him. So I think it was part of the political approach, I would say maneuver. Uh, However, I do think that Biden also, on the other hand, felt as though it was time for a Black woman, and he realized that he was only in the position of president because Barack Obama had picked him as his vice president. And I would just always bring people's attention back to the fact when Sandra Day O'Connor was nominated by Reagan, he said very clearly it's time for a woman to be on the U.S. Supreme Court. That's what he did. And then when Trump nominated Amy Conan Barrett, it was the same statement. I'm looking for a woman. So I don't think it would have been any different that she was being set up in any way at all. It's just that people play these political games and you have to be able to play them back if you want to be in that arena. And this is Joyce speaking. Um, I'm going to take a little bit of a different take in that I think by saying it earlier on while he was campaigning, I think um, it actually made it easier or more acceptable when he made the nomination and maybe made it easier in regards to other groups lobbying for someone to be put on the bench Um, because he had already made that commitment earlier on. I think as soon as they saw her, she was going to face heavy criticism as soon as they realized she was a black woman. So I don't think it made it harder. I think she would have still been under heavy scrutiny as a black woman. Here's another question I've been kind of curious about. She has a white husband and biracial children. And I'm wondering whether any of you think that the fact that she is married to a white man, does that factor in in any way as far as how other people are going to react to her? This is Judge Goble. I can take that one because I'm I'm married to a white man as well with biracial children, and um, it, it, it's so interesting because a lot of the the black judges, not male and female, we it seems we're all married to uh, to a white partner, and it we kind of laugh about it, but at the same time, it's just it's you know you love who you love, but I think that this is going to be to a benefit to her honestly um, because there's just that there's still that sense of um, yes, she's a black woman, but having, I think for, for the, the, the white, um, persons in our country that are trying to connect with her, they can see that connection with her husband and children, that it, it would be a benefit as far as her confirmation. And, and that way that she doesn't seem like she's so off the mark, but I really think America needs a black female, uh, on the Supreme court. That's what we need right now. The whole country needs it. Uh, and I'm really proud that that's where we're, that's where we're at and that I, I really hope she makes it through. What do you think she will be able to leave as a legacy after she has served in this position for some years? Uh, Linda Lee, I think just her being in that position is the legacy. And I think the legacy that she is about to create is one that is going to inspire young law students, um, African-American law students to know that they can actually attain that goal and reach that highest level. As far as her legacy, it's not just it's it's two um, young people of color. It's two um, young black women attorneys. But 
It's also kind of to the um, people who are public defenders as well, because I remember when she got nominated and people were texting me who were not black and were just proud of the fact that there was a public defender who was being nominated to the bench. And this is Alveta. Um I would say that, yes, I understand her legacy will be as the first black female U.S. Supreme Court justice, and yes, she would have been the first federal public defender um, or someone with that public defender background. But what I really hope for her is that her legacy will be the decisions that she writes the majority opinion for, and even where she writes a minority opinion for that to change the course of the society in which we live. Because that's what justices are there for. They're they're actually there to serve us, the people. And so that is my hope, that she will stand out from the crowd, and I believe that she will. Thank you so very much, all of you, for your time and for your participation. This has been really, really interesting. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Thank you. It was wonderful to hear everyone's perspective. Joyce Akahenda, Linda Lee, Renee Goebel, Jamie Cowan, and Velveta Golightly-Howell speaking with CPR's Elaine Tassi. The Senate Judiciary Committee will vote on the nomination of Judge Ketanji Brown-Jackson to the U.S. Supreme Court Monday, April 4th. And that is Colorado Matters for today with thanks to our own round table. Carl Bielek, Anthony Cotton, Pete Kramer, Andrea Dukakis, Michelle Fulcher, Nathan Heffel, Matt Hers, Michael Hughes, Carla Jimenez, Pedro Lumbrano, Patrice Mondragon, Shane Rumsey. And I'm Ryan Warner with special thanks to Chuck Murphy. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC.